Bistery. It's an amazing book, and I recommend that you read this book. It will change your life. Because not only does it have all those incredible ingredients which make up a good book, it also is the truth. And I've based my life on this book and what it says, and I'm doing all right, actually. Because do you know what? It hasn't let me down. And when God says in here, I promise, that's exactly what he does. So... If you haven't read this book from cover to cover, I recommend you do. And you know, these days it's very easy because you can buy a chronological Bible, which I would recommend. It's really nice to read it in the order that it actually happened in history. And you can get them and they're all broken up for you and each day you can read for 15 minutes and at the end of 365 years, days, days, unless you're a very slow reader, in 365 days, you will have read from cover to cover. And, and I tell you, I've done it many, many times, and every time I read through it, it's like something new. Because this isn't just paper, words on paper. This is actually the living word of God. And, and, and the words just come alive. And I know that everyone in here could testify that they've read a story, they've read it hundreds of times, and suddenly, something new comes, Yeah? So, we're talking about God's big picture. Oh, this has gone off again. Do I have to put it on again? <laughs> I had a real compliment given to me today. I was told that I'm now in the 20th century. <laughs> Not quite the 21st, but I am in the 20th century because I have managed to do a PowerPoint. How well it goes, I'm not sure, but I did my best, all right? So, we have the partial kingdom. I'm Sally Merker, and it is the 18th. Okay, so let's have a recap on the story so far. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. So, we started off with Adam and Eve. They were in the garden, in perfect relationship with God and in each other. Wow. And then, unfortunately... They ate the fruit that God said, don't eat this fruit. They were disobedient, and then we have the fall. But at that point, God gives a promise in Genesis chapter 3, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and her between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, which I understand is quite life-threatening, and you will bruise his heel, which isn't so life-threatening. God promises. And then we move on. And after the fall, the people rebelled. And in Genesis 6, only a few chapters on, he says, the Lord was grieved with all that he had made, and he said, I will wipe mankind off the earth. But he doesn't. Not quite. He does send the flood, but he saves Noah and his family. And for 40 days and 40 nights, They're in a boat known as the ark. And then dry land, and they're released, and God promises. But unfortunately, guess what? They didn't actually follow what God said. And the next event is the Tower of Babel. And by now, man thinks, do you know what? I can do this. We're going to build this tower. And God comes down. He says, hmm, 
Man is a bit too clever for his own good. So he scatters the people and gives them a different language. Then we move on. Came to Abraham. Father Abraham. The father of many nations. And God gives a promise that his children will outnumber the stars in the sky. If you live in the UK, that's not very impressive. If you go to Africa, it's incredibly impressive. And he made a covenant with him. God never breaks covenants. After Abraham comes Isaac. After Isaac comes Jacob. And then comes Joseph. And Joseph is chosen by God through an extraordinary journey to lead the people of God out of the land and into Egypt where they prosper. But unfortunately, they end up in slavery. And so then God preserves the life of a newborn baby called Moses. And Moses is raised up to probably be the greatest leader of all times. And he's also known as the lawgiver. And he leads God's people out of slavery by the most incredible way, read it in the book, to walk towards the promised land, the land that has been promised to them. They're disobedient. And unfortunately, apart from two, they don't get to the promised land and they just wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Only two people manage to get into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. After Moses dies, Joshua comes and he starts to lead the people and he leads them across the River Jordan and into the promised land. Da, da, da. Could this be it? Could this be the serpent crusher that they've been waiting for? So, we have the kingdom of God, we have God's people. The Israelites, it worked at home. Oh, Canaan, God's place, God's rule and blessing, God's law and the king. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And I am doing Judges to Chronicles. Yes, how exciting is that? I tell you, I was very excited. So let me just recap where we've come from. God's promise that there will be a serpent crusher. I love that. Thank you, Ben, for introducing me to that word. Serpent crusher. This king is going to have the obedience of the nations. And this king is to rule under God. So, I'm looking at the partial fulfillment. We're looking at Judges through to 1 Kings, chapter 11. And the book of Judges is a circle of sin and grace. Okay, I'm starting in Judges, but I just want to just sneak back a few verses into Joshua. Because Joshua's last words to the people were, Fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols of your ancestors worshipped and choose today whom you will serve. And then he goes on. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And many of us, including my mum and dad, had that on a text in our house, which was referred to often. And the people replied, 
we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. So, Joshua dies, and God commands each of the tribes to take the land. So they're now in the promised land. They've been battling. They've cleared a lot of it. The the land has been divided between the different tribes, and now God says, take the remaining land. He says you're to drive out every foreigner in the land. They almost did it, but not quite. And unfortunately, because they didn't do what God asked them to do, the very people who they didn't drive out caused them to sin and caused them to abandon God and to serve their local gods and idols. And I just want to make a point here to self. You know, when God says to us to get rid of something in our lives, he does it for a reason. It's not because he's a spoil sport or is a meanie. You see, God spoke to the children of Israel. He said, take the land, get rid of all the enemies. They got rid of maybe 90%, but that 10% caused them to fail. They were the very ones that caused them to trip up. So I would say to you, if God is saying to you to do something, to give something up, please do it. He's not doing it to make you, uh, to spoil you, to spoil your fun. He's doing it for your good because that very thing is going to cause your downfall in the years ahead. And you will say, much like all throughout this Bible, no, that will never happen to me. I will serve the Lord my God all the days of my life. But if we aren't obedient, then the very things will come back and they'll bite us on the bottom. And I just felt when I was sitting there that one of the things is I believe there is someone in the room here who is entertaining a relationship and God has said, no, don't do it. And it's like, yeah, but I really like this person. I don't want to give them up. God is saying, give them up. Because if you don't, they will be your downfall. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next month, maybe not next year. But they will be your downfall. So when God says something to us, we have to be obedient. You see, the problem with the uh, children of Israel is that they weren't obedient And you know, by chapter 3 in Judges, it says God burned with anger and turned the people over to King Kushan for eight years. The people finally repented and begged for God's help. And at that point, God gave them a judge. So, be amazed. Israel sins. God judges them. Israel cries for mercy, God provides a judge, all is well in the land, but not for long, because then they're so cocksure of themselves, they then sin, and the circle goes on and on and on. A little woo, please. Woo! I can't tell you how long that took me to do. But Ben said, "You, Sally, you can do this, and it's like, yes, I can do it. So, I'm going to leave that up there. The book of Judges, there are actually 12 judges, which is kind of interesting, over 200 years. Judges came, judges went. And I'm just going to focus on one story. 
It's a gruesome story. I hope you like gruesome things. Okay, we're looking at the end of Judges. Samson has died. Great story of Samson. Bit sad as well at the same time. And we start off in chapter 19. It says, Now in those days Israel had no king. Okay? It's very important you hear that. In those days Israel had no king. Right, I'm now going to give you a story, a potted story of what actually happens. This is a real story, Craig. So, this is a story of a man, a Levi, who had a concubine. And unfortunately, the concubine gets angry and decides to go home. Did I say porcupine? No, concubine. (laughs) You know what I mean. Did I say it right? Concubine. Concubine. It was, you know, one of those women. Anyway, uh, at least you're listening to me. That's, that's very good. Anyway, this concubine uh, gets very angry and runs back to her father. And after a few months, our Levi man thinks, hmm, I'm going to go and get her back. So he makes his way to Bethlehem. He finds the woman, talks to the dad. Dad says, yep, you can have her back. And he gets a little bit delayed. Won't go into that as to why he gets delayed. And eventually he says, right, come on, we've got to get back. We've got to get back to our own land. So he sets off with his concubine. And uh, they get as far as a place called um, Gibar. And this is a place in the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm going to pick the story up um, where it says here, yes, verse 20 of chapter 19. They reached the town of Gibeah, where they decide to spend the night in the town square. An old man returning sees them and says, you are welcome to stay with me, and I will give you anything that you might need. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home. Uh, just moving on. While they were enjoying themselves, eating and drinking, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting at the old man, bring out the man who's staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing, for this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. But they wouldn't listen to him. So Levi took hold of his concubine, and he pushed her out of the door. And the men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until the very morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go, and at daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When the husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold, dead. He put her body on his donkey and he took her home. Gets worse. When he got home, he took a knife and he cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each of the tribes throughout all the territory of Israel. And everybody who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. As a result of that happening, they then have a civil war. 
And in fact, in modern day terms, we would call it um, a genocide, where the tribes of Israel practically annihilated the tribe of Benjamin for what they had done. Can I just remind you what the scripture said? In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. Lessons to learn from this particular story. Seriously, Sally? Yeah, I think there are lessons for us to learn. When there is no king in the land, things go wrong. My friends, we have no king in our land, in our nation, and look at the state of our nation. And if you think things are already bad, I think that they will get a whole lot worse until the king is in or on the throne. And you see, the thing is, is that we say, no, it will never get that bad. We won't have men knocking on uh, doors and demanding for men to come out and have sex with them. That will never happen, Sally. Seriously? You really believe that? Then I believe you're deceived. Who would have thought what is going on in our nation 10 years ago, would we would see what we are seeing today. It's very sobering. True for ourselves. If we have no king in our lives, we will go off the rails. We will do terrible things. And you're sitting there thinking, no, Sally, I'll never do that. You know, I went to Rwanda to cover the genocide there. And I met with people. Do you know, that was the most Christian place on the face of the planet. They'd had an incredible revival. An incredible spiritual outpouring. And they had the worst genocide. And we sat around and we said, that'll never happen to us. You know, that'll never happen in England. And actually we had to kind of like wake up and judge ourselves soberly, and we thought, you know what, given the same circumstances, we would probably do exactly the same. Because actually human nature is the same. We may have different skin tones, we may speak a different language, but we're all human beings. So this is a very sobering story, but it's because there was no king in the land. So, my friends, we are now at the end of the book of Judges. If you want to read some more gruesome stories, Judges is your book. So, we then move on to Samuel. Back onto a bit of safer ground here. So, 1 Samuel. Well, we have a bit of a false start because actually the people demand a king. And I thought about that. I thought, how would God feel when his people, that he is cared for, looked after and loved. So actually, we don't want you anymore. We want a king. We want our own king. Because all the other nations have got a king. If we have a king, everything will be all right. So they get a king. And Saul was anointed and appointed. He was a handsome-looking man, head and shoulders above everybody else. Probably looks like good fodder to be a king. But unfortunately, he was disobedient. And so God rejected him. So then David, King David, was anointed, a man after God's own heart. But actually, David's ride wasn't exactly hunky-dory, was it? Because he was anointed as king, but he ended up having to flee for his life, and he lived in a cave with a whole load of other smelly men. 
How do I know they're smelly? Because they're in the desert and there's not much water, so I don't suppose they had showers and facilities. So the king's suffering and rejection before he actually became the king. Sounds like somebody else, doesn't it? Right. So, was David the serpent crusher? No, he wasn't. There was still one greater to come. That's what it says in 2 Samuel. He will be the son of David and the son of man. Oh, yes, yeah, son, of, son of God. can't even read now. It's because I'm quite excited about all of this. I tell you, I've been living with this. It's like, you know, when I listened to Craig last week and he said he felt like a fire hose had been squirted at him, which would take you off your feet and put you against the wall. Actually, I was so excited. I didn't sleep for one whole night. I just was going over this story over and over and over and what I was supposed to be saying. So I've kind of lived with this. Uh, right, so after... Um, David, comes Solomon. Was Solomon going to be the serpent crusher? Because when you read what happens in Solomon's time, it starts off so well. He builds the most incredible temple. And the glory of God fills the temple. And on that day, 22,000 cattle were slaughtered and 120,000 sheep and goats you would think you would never forget that day. It must have been incredible. The, yeah, all the blood, the squealing, the noise, the smell, the glory of God. So dense, you couldn't actually see. Amazing. And it says of Solomon that um, his, his palace was like the greatest palace of all times. There was more wealth and opulence like we have never seen. There was peace in the land. And yet, what happened? Solomon did what God told him and all the others not to do. He married foreign women. And in his latter years, he ended up building temples for them and worshipping them. And God said, mate, I'm really angry with you, stop it. And he said, no, I won't. So, Solomon and the golden years. The promises were fulfilled. Let me read you what the promise was. Praise the Lord. This is what 1 Kings 8 says. Praise the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his Moses through his servant Moses. So the king, Solomon, who started out so well, forgot, forgot about all that sacrifice on that day, forgot about the glory cloud that turned up, forgot all about the wealth, where it came from, and he was seduced by these women who he married, who God said, don't do that, and they turned his heart away from God. And he ended up having his kingdom stripped from him. And this is where I go, da, da, da. The story is to be continued next week. And Paul Belcher is going to be telling you what happened. Good. You know me. 
You know me well enough that I always like to do something at the end when we've heard a story, a true story. Because it's not just what happened then, it affects us today. And so I would like to ask, and in fact I already have, David Morgan to come, because I want him to come and pray for us as a people and as a nation. David, you are an incredible prayer. You have the anointing of God. When you pray, the, sh- the atmosphere shifts. We are so thrilled and grateful that God brought you and your beautiful wife, Marlene, to us. And so I would like you to lead us, however you feel Holy Spirit has given you, prompted you, in praying for us as a nation who has no king. So, I don't know, maybe we should stand, or if you feel you want to kneel, if you want to lay prostrate on the floor, whatever it is you want to do, but I think this is a holy moment for us to respond. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your great love and your mercy. And the first thing I want to do is apologize for our nation who's turned its back on you. What's happening in our country today is nothing to do with the fact that we haven't got enough police, hospitals, prison staff, doctors, social security or anything else. Our nation is in a mess because it's put God off the agenda. And Father, I pray that you will be merciful to us as a nation and forgive us for our backslidings. For, oh God, we realize that we've allowed as a church, sometimes as individuals, for the powers of darkness to take over, for Antichrist to make progress, and souls and families to be lost and damned and living in misery. But I come before you this morning in the name of Jesus. And I give notice to Satan himself. Satan, you are under notice. We are taking back this nation in the name of Jesus because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him who is seated on the throne of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, there is no power on earth, no power in hell, no power in heaven that can withstand the name of Jesus. You may grin, Satan. You may think, who does he think he is? Who does this church think they are? But we come not in our strength or in our weakness, but in the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, and we are claiming back our nation that once again we will be known as a Christian nation where we will see not tens and thousands, but millions of people bowing down and worshipping him who is worthy of all praise and adoration. Oh, we thank you, Father. The battle is over. The victory is won, and Jesus Christ is Lord. And we enter into that victory this morning. And Father, we say to Satan, he is under notice. He must realize his days are numbered. He must realize his past is sell by date. That happened over 2,000 years ago at Calvary, when Jesus died and rose again. 
in victory, in triumph, in authority. And he it is that reigns, no earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of eternity. Oh, God, help us, I pray, and breathe upon our nation. And, oh, God, we pray for the church, too. For there is entering into the church heresy. Even the state church are entertaining and promoting things that are ungodly and sinful. But we pray that holiness and righteousness shall sweep across this nation. That Jesus shall be glorified. Oh God, let your will be done. Let your name be glorified. Let the people know that Jesus Christ is risen and Jesus Christ is Lord. We give you the glory. We give you the praise. We give you the honor. And in faith, we claim the victory that you have purchased at the cross. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.